0: gathered in love and service for justice and peace. According to that beautiful old Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare, shaker tune we just heard, "'Tis a gift to be simple," and I agree. But gifts themselves and their giving, receiving, rejecting, returning, reciprocating gifts are complicated. Gift exchange is a core human experience, an everyday, even unconscious experience, but every form involves an element of risk in establishing, strengthening, or repairing our relationships. It's this risk that can make gift exchange an emotional and even spiritual minefield. That's why we seek wisdom and guidance from advice columnists. (laughs) Here's an example from a Boston Globe advice column. Dear Misconduct, My boyfriend and I have been dating a little over a year. His mom has given me little gifts here and there. Should I get her a Christmas present this year? We didn't exchange gifts with each other's families last Christmas. What about his sister, niece, and nephew? I've signed my name to birthday gifts that he has given to his family and given gifts to his niece and sister. I have a feeling he will not be getting me, my family anything because he has never given a gift or signed his name to one I have given to my relatives. I should just ask him, But I feel weird asking about gift-giving. Sound familiar? Haven't we all felt weird asking about gift-giving at some time? Maybe back in February when we tried to figure out what our Valentine was giving us so we could figure out what to give to them. Or when we're wondering about asking for cash instead of a pen for a graduation gift. (laughs) or when we're struggling to talk about our church stewardship pledge. Gift exchange customs and their complicated navigation are found in all cultures and across time, intimately intertwined in social, economic, political, and moral systems. That's why they are of such interest to social scientists, as well as etiquette experts and Unitarian Universalists. This morning, fellow seekers, I invite all of us into a mindful Unitarian Universalist inquiry of gift exchange. I know what you're thinking. Right, we're gonna start with that classic 90-year-old study by French anthropologist, Marcel Mauss, Essay on the gift, archaic form of exchange. I know you know it so well, but let me just go over some basics. Mauss cast a very wide net in his analysis, looking at everything available to him at the time, from historical records of ancient Rome to late 19th and early 20th century research on indigenous societies in Melanesia, Polynesia, and Northwest America. Across variations of trade, barter, and potlatch redistribution systems all over the world and over time, Moss found three consistent obligations of the gift to give, to receive, to repay. He detailed the elements of competition, of status, and power involved in each of these obligations. And he made an interesting observation. So-called advanced societies' gift exchanges are not so much different from the so-called archaic societies he analyzed. I quote, We contend that the same morality and economy are at work, albeit less noticeably in our own societies, and we believe that in them we have discovered one of the bases of social life. These pages of social history, theoretical sociology, political economy, and morality do no more than lead us to old problems which are constantly turning up under new guises. I wonder if Professor Moss could have predicted this particular new guise of an old problem. Dear Miss Manners, (laughs) I am invited to a Super Bowl party. The host is providing all the food and drinks and says, just show up. He is from the South and says, it's an insult for guests to bring food. Could I bring a gift for him? The old problems turning up in new guises come from a shared recognition of the obligations of the gift, but the lack of shared rules for exchange. This letter writer writes of the strange southern customs. But my friend from upstate New York is similarly offended if guests guests bring food to her dinner party. She says, food gifts are different We are conflicted, the rules are unclear, not even shared within and between families, let alone generations, economic and social classes, and maybe not within UU congregations either. Are you familiar with the O. Henry short story, The Gift of the Magi? Set around 1900 in New York City, it is the tale of impoverished young newlyweds Della and Jim's first Christmas. Della sells her beautiful long hair so that she can buy Jim a watch fob for his beloved pocket watch. Meanwhile, Jim sold his watch to buy Della a set of combs that she always wanted. O. Henry compares the couple to the original magi, two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. The form of the gift as well as the relationship between giver and receiver, matters as much to 21st century Bostonians and Americans as to Della and Jim or any of the peoples of Moss's research. The whole thing becomes more interesting, more fraught, and more meaningful when you consider that gifts are not just tangible objects like food, but more fundamentally as in Della and Jim's case, selflessness, effort, love, and all gifts, as we've all experienced, have some and sometimes a great deal of emotional meaning as well. Mindful gift-giving, thinking about and talking about our personal, familial, and yes, congregational gift-giving Expectations, practices, voicing our unspoken rules can help lessen anxiety and strengthen those relationships we care about. Tandy Rogers, growth specialist at the UUA, came up with a way to help congregations decide what and where to give to the wider community. You can check out the diagram on her UUA blog, but here's a summary. First, think about the things that people consistently show up for. As Tandy says, the things that your congregation does together that make you go, dang, I feel you-you to my bones when we do that. (laughs) Second, identify the three most exciting places in the community and three places that break your heart. Third, see how these things fit together. Here's one example from Rogers. If your congregation has a choir that blows the roof off with energy and beauty, and you live in a city whose homicide rate breaks your heart, perhaps your congregation is called to start a community-wide peace choir, show up at places of violence, and sing them back into grace. I see this as identification of gifts of the congregation's self, kind of like Della and Jim deciding what to give to each other. What questions can we ask to examine our own assumptions about gift-giving? And what about the gifts we give as congregations to the community, whether those be gifts of time, service, money, or goods? When do we talk about the differences in power and status between the congregation and the groups and individuals we interact with? The status and prestige conferred on the giver, the indebtedness of the receiver. These questions we ask ourselves about how we can give gifts well brings us quickly to the second second obligation of the gift, to receive because of course you can't give something well or at all without someone to accept it. Some time ago, when I was a very junior faculty member, a new colleague invited all of his co-workers to his home for a potluck dinner. Everyone signed up to bring something and my contribution was bread. Heading to the party in a very affluent suburb, I was terribly self-conscious even before I got to the house, for which the adjective palatial would not be an exaggeration from my renter-of-shared-apartment view. The professor's glamorous wife met me at the door, saw the loaf of bread, and said, Oh, we've got plenty of good bread. Why don't you just keep that and take it home with you? I can tell that others have experienced that emotional wallop that comes from rejection of a gift. When we offer gifts, no matter how small or seemingly unimportant, we are offering ourselves and are vulnerable to rejection. So no matter the intention of the recipient to not accept a gift risks making its giver feel personally rejected. So guests who bring food to that Super Bowl party are in the host's view rejecting his gift of hospitality. Receiving gifts is a practice that our American society has a hard time with. In an essay that Moss describes as curious Ralph Waldo Emerson notes that just as one who offers a gift makes herself vulnerable to rejection, one who receives a gift leaves himself open to degradation. He writes, it is not the office of a man to receive gifts. How dare you give them? We wish to be self-sustained. We do not quite forgive a giver. The hand that feeds us is in some danger of being bitten. We can receive anything from love, for that is a way of receiving it from others, but not from anyone who assumes to bestow. This is my favorite part. part. We sometimes hate the meat which we eat because there seems something of degrading dependence in living by it. He is a good man who can receive a gift well. This points up the old problem of differing status of gift givers and recipients, the power and status dynamic that underlies the exchange. This wish to be self sufficient. To always be the giver and never the receiver is very strong in dominant American culture. We hear this in the rhetoric of right-wing pundits about those who receive government assistance as takers. We see this in our own communities in the burnout of caregivers who are reluctant to give the gift of care, to receive the gift of care from others. Here's an old story about receiving gifts recounted by John O'Donohue in his book, Anamkara. A young king took over a kingdom. He was loved before he became a king and his subjects were delighted when he was finally crowned. They brought him many different gifts. After the coronation, the new king was at supper in the palace. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. The servants went out to discover an old man, shabbily dressed, looking like a beggar. He wanted to see the king. The servants did their best to dissuade him, but to no avail. The king came out to meet him. The old man praised the king, saying how wonderful he was and how delighted everyone in the kingdom was to have him as king. He had brought the king the gift of a melon. The king hated melons, but being kind to the old man, he took the melon, thanked him, and the old man went away happy. The king went indoors and gave the melon to his servants to throw out in the back garden. The next week, at the same time, there was another knock at the door. The king was summoned again, and the old man again praised the king and offered him another melon. The king took the melon and said goodbye to the old man. Once again, he threw the melon out the back door. This continued for several weeks. The king was too kind to confront the old man or belittle the generosity of the gift that he brought. Then, one evening, just as the old man was about to hand the melon to the king, a monkey jumped down from a portico in the palace and knocked the melon from the old man's hand. The melon shattered in pieces all over the front of the palace. When the king looked, he saw a shower of diamonds flying from the heart of the melon. Eagerly, he checked the garden at the back of the palace. (laughs) There, all the melons had melted around a little hillock of jewels. O'Donohue concludes, The moral of this story is that sometimes awkward situations, problems, or difficulties are really disguised opportunities for growth. Very often at the heart of the difficulty, there is the light of a great jewel. It is wise to learn to embrace with hospitality that which is awkward and difficult. I would add, because we can't rely on a monkey to conveniently interfere and make them plain, we must look carefully for the diamonds in every gift we are given, especially the unwanted kind. How do we respond as receivers of gifts as individuals and as congregations? Are we open, willing to take on the moral indebtedness of gifts given with good intention even when they are not what is desired or expected? I know this congregation pretty well, and I know we've received some melons that yielded gems later, maybe much later. I think we've probably got some melons ripening out back right now. Now, the story of the king and the beggar ends there, and it left me wondering, how did the king repay those gifts the melons, as well as the jewels. We might imagine that instead of making an equal or more generous gift to the old man, the king was moved to greater benevolence for all his subjects, especially those with greatest need. Like receiving gifts, their repayment is an obligation that we Americans have a hard time with, given our ideal, make that delusion of classless society. Maas was referring to his contemporary French society when he said, we must always return more than we receive. The return is always bigger and more costly. Returning to that Super Bowl party dilemma, Miss Manners' advice was that being an amiable guest and then reciprocating the invitation is the appropriate repayment to Super Bowl party host. That does sound good. But what if Super Bowl party guest has a third-floor walk-up studio apartment unsuitable for hosting? Or if Super Bowl party guest can't afford to reciprocate in kind? I think that Ms. Manners would agree that the in-kind part of the repayment doesn't matter as much as the intended kindness. This is where the concept of paying it forward comes in. Generosity to someone or something other than the original gift giver. I don't think I'm alone in realizing that many of the gifts my parents bestowed on me, the gift of life for one, can't be repaid in kind to them. Just thinking of all the people who have made it possible for me to follow my calling to ministry, All those gifts, wanted or otherwise, that's uh, uh, made it possible for me to be with you today. That's a lot of accumulated obligation. Not only am I obligated to be the best minister I can, but when I help out a seminarian or train lay leaders, I'm repaying that debt. It is an obligation of purpose and joy. What are the gifts you have received that have made it possible for you to be here today? Who are you paying it forward to? How do we repay the gifts we receive from being a member of a congregation? How does our congregation repay the gifts we receive from the community. Moss concluded his essay optimistically. There is no need to seek far for goodness and happiness, he wrote. It is to be found in the imposed peace, in the rhythm of communal and private labor, in wealth amassed and redistributed, in the mutual respect and reciprocal generosity that education, and I would add religious community, can impart. Mindfully reflecting on gifts, whatever their form, however they are received and repaid, helps us to understand the essence of our personal and communal relationships, those relationships which shape ourselves and our world. Fellow seekers, Let us, as Unitarian Universalists, apply our principles of justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, and a free, responsible, and also mindful search for truth and meaning to the interdependent web of gift exchange. For all life is a gift which we are called to use to build the common good and make our own days glad, amen.